0: Uh, a number of years ago, I had a church secretary when I was serving a congregation in Vancouver before I went to the college. And uh, that secretary decided to go to Italy on vacation, all very excited, and they did the usual uh, stops along the way. It was uh, our secretary at the church, Susan, and her husband, and her two teenage children, uh, Ben and Vivian. So they did what you've done if you've been over to Rome, they did the Colosseum and so forth. Uh, And then eventually they found their way one day to Vatican City. Uh, And as they entered into Vatican City, of course, they went to the Sistine Chapel. Now, I've only visited there once. I don't know if you've been there, what your experience was like, but uh, it was like a human conveyor belt of people from one end of the Sistine Chapel to the other. Their necks craned heavenward and just a swirl of humanity and a cacophony of voices. I I couldn't get out of there fast enough myself. And in that space, when our secretary was looking up and enjoying the beautiful art on the ceiling by Michelangelo, she looked down for a moment, and she realized that they had lost one of their teenage children. And she cried out at the top of her voice, Vivian, Vivian, where are you? And 10 seconds turned into 30, turned into a minute, turned into two, and she began to panic. She could feel the panic rising. And then at the other end of the Sistine Chapel, she spotted her. And they went over and they found her and gave her a good dressing down. They yelled at her right there in the Sistine Chapel, a very holy spot, and told her never to do that again. Vivian was kind of embarrassed, you know, teenage girls being called out publicly in a space, a little embarrassed, that kind of thing. And just as Susan finished disciplining her one child, she looked around and she said, where's Ben? Now she had lost her other child in the Sistine Chapel. And one minute turned into two, turned into five, turned into ten, and she still could not find her son. And the panic was rising again. And so she spoke to a Vatican security guard and she may have twisted the truth just a little bit. She said, I've lost my child. She didn't say that he was a tall teenage boy. The guard may have had the impression it was like a toddler who was missing. And so in the exchange of Italian and English, they worked out that there was a problem. And so uh, Susan and her family were escorted Uh, through the back corridors she described it as da vinci code style the back corridors of the vatican places that people usually don't go and they ended up in this enormous security room with television sets everywhere monitoring vatican city and they stood there just for a few minutes and she spotted her son in saint peter's basilica and she said there he is And the security guard frowned at her when he realized it was a tall teenager they were looking for, not a small child. And they went to St. Peter's Basilica, and they found Ben, and Susan threw her arms around her lost son and gave him a big kiss and told him how worried she was. She thought she had lost him. There was great rejoicing. Everyone was delighted, except who? Who? Vivian, their daughter, stood at a distance like this and said to her mother, So I get lost for two minutes and you yell at me and he gets lost for an hour and that's the reaction? Next time I'm getting lost for longer, she said. I guess you can understand that reaction. After all, this is a child and not a parent. I wonder if that's a little bit what's going on in today's parable from the Gospel according to Luke. We have a rather cheeky son who says to his father, he sizes him up and he says, Dad, you are healthy as a horse and I can't wait for you to die in order for my life to begin. So why don't you just give me my inheritance right now And I'll be off and everything will be fine. I'm sick of this life. I'm sick of being on a farm. I want the big lights of the big city. Now, I don't know how you would respond if one of your children asked for their inheritance in such a way. Uh, In Canada, the cost of sending our children to university feels like you're giving the inheritance away. But usually the children ask politely for that. For whatever reason, in this parable, the way Jesus tells it, the father agrees to these outrageous terms and divides the inheritance, and off the son goes. I picture the father, heartbroken, standing in the laneway, watching his son go as fast as he can, praying that just once... The young son would turn and look back, but he just keeps going. He goes to the far country, as it's often referred to. Now, in Israel in that day, when you visit today, and I often lead uh, pilgrimage groups from Canada to to Israel, when you go to the Sea of Galilee today, uh, it's entirely within the state of Israel today. But in biblical times, in Jesus' day, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, especially the northwestern side, where Jesus spent so much of his ministry, was a good and godly place for a Jew to be. People kept kosher. uh, It was an appropriate place to be. The east side of the Sea of Galilee was more pagan. So think about the story of the Gerasene demonic, Remember that one from Scripture. What happens, the very first thing that happens, when an undocumented rabbi like Jesus steps off the boat on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee? He's met by a man with so many demons, he goes by the nickname Legion. On that side was the cities of the Decapolis, Greek cities, pagan cities, unclean cities, set up by the soldiers of Alexander the Great. There are a lot of people who muse that the first folks who heard this parable as Jesus taught would have thought the far country was one of those cities of the Decapolis on the eastern side. Kind of the Las Vegas of their day. What happens in the far country stays in the far country, if you know what I mean. So off he goes to one of these cities to have a great time And he spends all of his money on drinks and wild living and cover charge. But something strange happens. Now, this will surprise you. But apparently, when the prodigal stops buying rounds of drinks for everyone, he finds himself alone. All of his friends, so-called, disappear. And as we work our way through this parable We find him eventually sitting, penniless, on a bar stool, sipping a Coke Zero with no idea what comes next. He has to look for a job, he supposes. And did you catch the irony? It's delightful. Where does he get a job? On a farm. The place that he was trying to get away from. In the first place. But not just any farm. For us we hear it's a farm he's working on. We think all right that's okay. But it's a pig farm. An unclean farm. The folks who originally heard this parable. Would just be shocked. They'd look at each other and say. You can't imagine someone falling any lower than that. Feeding slop to pigs. In our part of the world, it would be just down the road from us in Vancouver. It would be in in the city of Seattle where Microsoft Headquarters is based. Uh, It would be like seeing Bill Gates trying to fish out of dumpsters behind Microsoft Headquarters, right? You can't fall any lower than this point in the parable. And so the prodigal comes to his senses. He literally thinks to himself, why am I doing this? when I would have a far better lifestyle on my family farm at home. And so he begins his walk back home. Now, I picture the parable uh, playing out in this way. I, I picture the prodigal walking along home and rehearsing his speech on his way. Right? So he's walking and he thinks, uh, what am I going to say to dad? Um, dad, I really messed up this time. I'm sorry about that. No, that's not good. Uh, Dad, um, will you take me back and I'll try and make things right? No, that's not it. Mm. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That'll do. The problem, of course, is that he's thinking of all of this from an adult child's perspective, not from the perspective of a parent. While he's been off having a great time in the far country, his father has been sitting at home heartbroken. I picture the father in this parable going out every day to the laneway, Do you think it's a coincidence that that one day he's standing at the laneway and he sees the prodigal coming home? I imagine that he built it into his daily practice. Picture the neighbors sitting in the neighboring farmhouse. There's the man of the house sitting reading his Jerusalem Post newspaper. He's drinking his coffee. He looks out the window and says, Martha, look at that fool out there. He's out again looking for his son. That boy is never coming home. But the Bible says when he was still a long way off, the father spotted him coming down the laneway. And the father recognizes this gaunt gentleman who's wearing who knows what compared to when he left home. He recognizes him as his son, and he runs towards him. No men of a certain social stature in Israel in that day would never run. They'd have trouble in the Olympics, I suppose. They would never run. It was almost like a senior tax collector climbing a tree to see Jesus in Jericho. It's poor form. But the father runs. To his son and I don't know how you interpret the scriptures, but I'm curious, I'm not even sure the prodigal got out his entire speech. "Father, I have sinned against you, and against heaven, I' am not even worthy to before his dad tackles him in an embrace of love, and they fall to the ground. There is laughter, there is tears. And the servants must wonder, what is going on? Because they're next on the scene. Maybe they think their master is being attacked by this homeless person coming down the laneway. But he waves them off and commands them to go get his finest jewelry, his finest clothing, to kill the fatted calf, to prepare a feast for his son, once dead, is alive. Imagine if Jesus had stopped the parable right here. We would have a story of one lost son. It's a story of reconciliation, of the Father's love, of mercy, of forgiveness. It's a wonderful story. But Jesus didn't stop the story here, did he? He kept going. If Jesus had stopped the story here, we could even redeem the silliness of the far country. One of the finest theologians of the last century, Karl Barth, even uses the imagery of the far country in a redemptive way. He says that when the Father sent the Son into the world, he describes the incarnation of Jesus Christ as traveling to the far country, the earth. But Jesus doesn't stop here. There's another character. The story of the Sunday school teacher who is teaching the the parable that we're looking at today and wanted to just check in and make sure that the children were hearing the story okay. And so uh, she said, all all right, let's review. Uh, What's the character's name that goes away? A little hand shoots up and says, the prodigal. Very good, she says. Okay. And who is waiting for the prodigal with open arms when he returns? A little hand shoots up and says, the father. Great. That's good. Okay. And uh, who can tell me the character who is most upset at the return of the prodigal? And there's blank stares. You can hear crickets. Uh, uh, she says, okay, Uh, who can tell me who had the most to lose by the prodigal's return? Nothing. Until one little hand goes up and says, the fatted calf? Well, it's true, but you know what she was getting at. It's the second son. Why does Jesus keep going? Why does he make this beautiful story of reconciliation muddy? Story continues: that the son, the elder son, comes in from a long day's work. He's senior management on that farm now, and he hears music and laughter and smells a beautiful aroma. And he snaps his fingers and calls over one of the servants and says, What's going on? What's going on in the house? And the servant backs away, anticipating the rage. And says, Sir, uh, your younger brother has come home and your father has thrown a feast. And he's furious. He will not go into the house and join the feast, he will not speak to his brother he sits on the back porch of the house fuming and we can feel his anger in fact i have a hunch there's a few people today at fitzroy that know that anger Been a preacher a good number of years. Been a preacher way longer than I've been a professor. I've served churches from Halifax to Vancouver and stops in between. And over the years, as I've picked up this parable and prayed over it and preached it, there's a reaction at the back door of the church, coast to coast, shaking hands. Do you know what it is? People will say politely, usually politely, as they shake my hand, Pastor, I'm the older brother. What about him? Maybe there's a few older siblings in the church today. I've had prodigals in my churches in Canada. They've got great stories, amazing, wild, crazy, Holy Spirit stories of how they were in the gutter with the pigs, And God lifted them up and literally saved them. And we praise God for the prodigals. But have you ever belonged to a church full of prodigals? I've never served one. I've served a lot of elder sibling congregations over the years. The people who take care of ailing parents. The people who care for a spouse that is sick. The person who does all the thankless jobs in the family or even the church, the reliable ones, the dependable ones. Can you feel the older brother's anger? Has it been gnawing at you for years? Are you still waiting for your fatted calf? My own family has a story of a prodigal. My mother's brother was one who uh, went off and certainly enjoyed a wild lifestyle, leaving my own mom to care for her aging parents, burying her father, my grandfather, first, and then for the years that followed, uh, doing a very faithful and godly job of caring for my grandmother. And you know the routine. Some of you have done it yourself. Some of you are doing it right now weekly medical appointments, weekly grocery shopping trips, relocating an aging parent close by so you can care for them better. All of those things that take place. And then my grandmother got sick, and she ended up in the Grace Hospital in Winnipeg, and her days were coming to an end. And guess who showed up for the first time in years, just days before she died, my uncle. he came breezing into the hospital, full of chat, just wanting to have a little time with Mum before she passed. I was furious. I said to my mother, "You know why he's here." And she said, "He wants to make sure he's still in the will. And it's true. That was his intention. My grandmother passed a few days later. We had uh, the service at Kildonan Presbyterian Church. And as we uh, went to the graveyard outside the church, my brother was there receiving all the condolences and being you know, slapped on the back and hugs and all that kind of stuff while my mother and the other church ladies were in the kitchen preparing the food. I was furious. And I was a little furious at my mom. And I said, how can you allow this guy, this prodigal, to take all of the credit for the work that you've done? I still remember what my mom said. She said, ah, she said, you're thinking of it from a child's perspective. You need to understand that all these years, when I've been caring for your grandmother... I have had some amazing opportunities to share life with her and faith with her that my brother now will never have. And I'm richer for it. Which makes me think about that older sibling stewing on the back porch, feeling angry and bad for himself that he never got his fatted calf. Because here's the thing that confuses me about the parable. When you look up the law code that is assigned here, and you can do it later this afternoon, it doesn't make for the best reading, I have to be honest and say. It's Deuteronomy 21, How to Divide Inheritance. What you find there is very clearly what would happen. And that is the elder sibling receives what's called the double portion. Why? A, he's the elder sibling, yes. But also, he would take over the family property and represent the family in the broader community, including in politics. So he got more. So here's the thing we feel bad for the older sibling in this parable at first, but then we realize when the cheekiness of the younger sibling invoked Deuteronomy 21, he got one third of the inheritance, and the elder sibling sitting there on the back porch, he got two thirds here's the other thing what happens the next morning when the prodigal wakes up maybe his head's ringing a little bit from the partying of the night before and he discovers that it's his brother and not his father who owns the farm his brother will be his boss how will he respond then? We want to know, Jesus, tell us. But he ends the parable there, as if to say, How would you respond? Would you respond with the same grace and mercy and forgiveness of the Father's open, loving arms or not? And in the end, my friends, the the funny thing about this parable is that the prodigal coming home is absolutely sure he does not deserve the grace and mercy of the father. And then the older brother stewing on the porch is absolutely sure he's earned the grace and love of the father. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. For it's God's grace, and it is freely given. So I don't know who you are, whether you consider yourself a prodigal or an older sibling, but wherever you are today, whether you're coming down the laneway or whether you're stewing on the back porch, Isn't it time to come inside? Isn't it time to come home? Let us pray. Father, your arms of mercy are open wide. Our sins of commission our sins of pride are so clear. Whatever holds us back from your embrace or for the care and embrace of others, would you remove that now through the power of the Holy Spirit? That we may know what it means to truly be adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the cross into your family, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.